Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. This is our second episode, so before I dive off into today's topic, I'd like to take a moment again to explain who I am, my intentions behind this podcast series, and what else I'm working on with the Contextual Insurgent Project. So let me introduce myself. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sense maker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was a Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. I was also a California Republican Party-endorsed state Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for their Guns in America issue. But I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. In fact, the topic of today's podcast is Antifa, specifically their tactics, strategies, and organizational style. Oh, I actually contributed a chapter on the tactics to an Antifa monograph coming soon from the Center for Security Policy, so stay tuned for that. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics and the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge, but I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go, and I want to help you change that. My starting format is four podcasts a week, 30 to 45 minutes apiece, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Monday, Thursday will be deep dives into specific topics, while the other two will be a more free-flowing discussion and analysis of current events that's open to pre-submitted questions from followers. This won't be the most polished production starting off. My intention is to get you useful and actual information in a digestible format as quickly as possible, and we'll tweak as we go. Uh, I meant tweak as improved, not tweak as in Hunter Biden, by the way. This podcast is the nucleus of a larger contextual insurgency project, which also includes a weekly roundup substack newsletter that will go out starting every Sunday with links to topical events and a short analysis. I plan to add a YouTube and website in the near future and expect more written content in various outlets as well as written activist guides for right-wingers. Now comes the part I ask for money. I intend to do this full-time, and if you find this project helpful, I would love your support. I've dusted off my Patreon and I have a cash app, and patronizing those would be greatly appreciated. My cash app is $EESmith4, that's the number 4, and the Patreon is patreon.com backslash EESmith4. Again, that's the number 4. Okay, let's get started. First, pronunciation. How do you pronounce Antifa? Well, it really doesn't matter. Um, The Germans say Antifa. But, you know, there's also Antifa or Antifa. I usually say Antifa, so whatever floats your boat, it honestly doesn't really matter. Okay, a little quick history. Antifa is short for Antifascist Action, which was founded in 1930s Weimar Germany by the German Communist Party and was quickly crushed by the Nazis in 1933. And it has zero connection to the modern European Antifa movement, which grew out of 1980s West Germany Autonomous Movement. Basically, the autonomous movement was a bunch of anarchists and squatters that chose the name and the symbols of Antifa, like the flag, as a sort of homage because they were in the middle of having street battles with a bunch of fringe right-wing movements in Germany at the time. The American Antifa movement is the product of a similar rebranding by a loose network of anarchists in the Pacific Northwest that now go by the Torch Antifa Network. The first group to actually call themselves that was Portland's Rose City Antifa in 2007.
To sum up their history, it's an entirely modern creation and there's absolutely no connection to the original anti-fascist action other than branding. Antifa as it currently exists I define as a transnational open source networked insurgency. Transnational because they have movements and affinity groups around the globe in almost every country. Antifa members from around the globe have also gone to fight in places like Syria. Look up Brace Belden. He's from San Francisco and he actually went to Syria to fight alongside the Kurds. He's actually now somehow a celebrity and Jake Gyllenhaal is actually making a film about his life. It's open source because the tactics of Antifa are free to find on the internet. Websites like Anarchist Library or Crime Think. And part of it being open source is that people are constantly innovating new tactics and when tactics work everyone else sees them and adopts them. A good example of this is Hong Kong. A lot of the tactics we're seeing domestically now were originally developed in Hong Kong, like the umbrellas and the lasers and putting out like the CS tear gas canisters using the road cones and the fire extinguishers. There are lots of really interesting tactics and techniques that were developed during the uprising in Hong Kong that have spread around the world. It's networked because it doesn't have a clear hierarchy like the military or corporation. It has cells, which are affinity groups basically, and they are kind of a loose movement of people that interact together and collaborate, but they don't have like clear structural leadership. It's an insurgency because they're basically attempting to undermine the government and our way of life. Now, anti-fascist sounds like something that most reasonable people would agree with, but the problem is their definition of fascist is anyone to the right of them. Considering they are far left by pretty much any objective standard, that's a problem for most people. They're predominantly based in urban areas. Uh, urban areas have a tremendous economic and cultural power, as well as network effects because lots of influential people living in a relatively dense place. 80% um, of Americans live in urban areas according to the U.S. Census, so you can probably understand why controlling that sort of area is valuable. There's currently two different strains of Antifa in practice. There's the organized groups like Torch Network, and there's the autonomous individuals that consider themselves to be Antifa and do support roles like research or they may go join the semi-open blocks. Uh, Michael Reinhold, the assassin of Aaron Danielson in Portland at the end of August this year, was probably the latter. Now, the core of Antifa is what's called an affinity group. An affinity group is basically a group of friends that may live and work together that have compatible politics and then they decide to work together to make political change. It's kind of different from what most people expect. You know, we have this idea, especially on the right, that, okay, I want to create a movement, so I'm going to create my group and then I'm going to start recruiting people. Well, that's how you get informants and, you know, people that try to undermine you, like turncoats. Uh, the infinity group model is more robust and it's it's harder to infiltrate because it's people that already know each other and then they're like, hey, let's go start doing politics together. Now, anarchist, Antifa, and Black Bloc are all different things. I mean, to be fair, most anarchists are also Antifa, but there are plenty of Antifa that technically aren't anarchists and Black Bloc is actually just a tactic. It's not really an identity. Now, a block is a group of people that dress together for political action, usually in some sort of matching color or costume. 
Um, you don't have to be black block. You don't even have to be violent or anything like that. A good example would be the handmaids that you see basically at any um, Supreme Court nomination these days. That's a block. Now there's three different block types. There's the open block, the closed block, and the semi-open block. The open block is the one that you see with something like the handmaids. Um, it's all the planning and organization is done in the open and everyone's invited to come take place. That means they rarely do anything really criminal because you're going to get busted. A closed block is where all the planning is done in secret and people are not allowed to join the block when it's doing its action. This is the sort of block that does a lot of very targeted direct action stuff like a lot of direct vandalism and you know very criminal very high threat stuff um, so they keep everything secret. A semi-open block has been most of what we've seen in Portland and it's probably the most common. That's the one where all the planning is done in private and secret amongst the core affinity groups but they do announce when and where the action is going to be and if people show up dressed in black they're allowed to join the action. Um, what they're doing in Portland is they'll say meet at this certain park everyone shows up if you're dressed in black you can join in and there will be the march to wherever you know the target is and then that you know they'll do it but you don't know what's going to happen until you're actually there like when I had mentioned when I was in undercover in Portland Black Block I didn't know you know we got to the Portland Police Association building and they set the place on fire I didn't know about that until they started tearing the door off and they lit it on fire. The sim open block is basically a way to combine the best attributes of the open and closed block because you allow the most numbers possible with you because that helps stress the police response like they they may be overwhelmed if you have enough people show up but because it's all the closed planning is done within the affinity groups it's a secret so you still get to they can still get to do their criminal acts whatever they're planning to do with a greater chance of getting away with it now the affinity groups use something called consensus decision making instead of like a democratic voting um, this means that it can be very time-consuming because they'll sit there and talk for hours depending on how it's going because they want to make sure everyone is on board with what's going to happen so that there aren't any aggrieved minorities in the group. Um, that's the best thing for solidarity is what they found. Now if they have a really big action they'll use something called a spokes council which is where they will actually pick a representative and the representative from each affinity group will go to a larger council that's basically like a supra affinity group that makes these decisions and it does consensus decision making as well but if they have a bunch of people working together you can't just put like 800 people in one room so they, they will have to send some representatives for that now with a semi-open block you will usually see a lot of regular protesters with them and what they do then is they'll use diversity of tactics. That means um, basically you agree not to mess everyone else over. Try to keep everyone else's in mind whenever you decide to do something. And they kind of respect each other. But they will even sometimes have written agreements where they will spell out like, okay, don't photograph uh, Antifa or black block people and no identifying marks. And, you know, don't photograph anything. Don't talk to the cops um, like they will have the regular protesters and the black block embedded with them and they're all kind of giving each other like leeway uh, 
So, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. It's like they, they do try to respect that autonomy, but there's kind of an agreement to not do something that's going to threaten everyone else. Diversity of tactics can be a handful for anyone to deal with. It's basically a broad array of different attacks, whether it's on security forces or the opposition, like they will have, like you'll be mobbed by regular protesters, people shooting fireworks, people using lasers, um, black block people attacking people that are transiting to and from parking garages. And that's dealing with that. There's one thing, if you ever go to an event, watch out for this. Um, there's something called a transition zone around any public event. It's like a two or three block area where there is a lull in security forces. Like whenever there's an event, the police are naturally drawn in towards the event. And there's this gap for like two or three blocks before you get back in the city and regular um, city security and city life begins again. Um, like you'll see when you go to an event sometimes, if it's very contentious, all the businesses are closed. There's no cops. You feel like you're in the middle of like 28 days later where the city's empty. Like you're walking, there's people, businesses are open. Then all of a sudden there's like this section of like two blocks where there's nothing open. No one's there. You're completely alone. And then you turn a corner and there's like 10,000 people. So that area right there is when you're most likely to be attacked especially if you're like transiting from a parking garage and like make sure you travel in a large group a really good video briefing of all this is the grant park chicago video that chicago pd released um, they had a march where basically black block was inside the march and they hijacked the march redirected it to the columbus statue in grant park and attacked it and tried to tear it down and it's really interesting to watch because they break it down um, the way it was coordinated and calibrated it was very sophisticated um, the block they basically pulled their umbrellas out changed into the black clothes re-erected the march in the park and the black block pinned the police officers that were protecting the statue in place they had um, their banners and signs they had sharpened stakes hidden inside and they had fire like primitive IEDs, like very large commercial fireworks, a lot of frozen um, water bottles and stuff, and they dumped them out in the crowd, and they're attacking the cops and stabbing them and throwing fireworks at them, and the crowd starts throwing all these frozen water bottles and stuff at the cops. They put 49 police officers in the hospital, but it was really interesting the way it was coordinated. The Black Bloc and the March um, leadership were actually obviously coordinating the block pin the cops in place and you could see the protesters flow around each side of the statue and push the cops out of the park and then once they push the cops out of the park they use their bikes as like a just the same way you know police bike cops use it like as a shield wall to hold the cops out of the out of the area while the black block tried to tear the statue down but look that up on youtube the grant park chicago pd video and if you go to crime think which is the anarchist slash Antifa website. It's been around for 20 years. They have another video of that that's hosted on Vimeo where you can watch from halfway through the attack to the end. And it's worth watching the Chicago Park breakdown because it's truly eye-opening. Now, the block when it's on the move is rather sophisticated. They have the main body, which is the core affinity group. And if they're allowing a semi-open block, they'll have 
the people that showed up to the action, they'll have people on bicycles. Um, they're called corkers, and they will leapfrog in front of the block and block the streets off. So, you know, to keep traffic away and to help keep the block together. Sometimes they'll have people on mopeds that are traveling as scouts. They'll be on flanking um, side streets and alleys and looking for the cops. And then when they get to wherever they're going, they'll actually have, you know, people stationed on the corners out three or four different blocks just walking and patrolling and watching for the cops. They will also have people at home listening to the scanners and live streams and trying to keep track of everything that's going on. Sometimes people will have drones. They'll have that as well. Um, they have a very, very sophisticated intelligence gathering aspect to the block, so don't underestimate them. Like I mentioned before, um, every time I tried to leave when I was in Portland, I would have to go two or three blocks before I wasn't, you know, seeing people stationed on street corners with radios looking for, you know, people like cops or looking for suspicious people or what they call fash, which is, you know, anyone who's, you know, right wing. Um, they had, you know, people patrolling. I had, you know, people that I saw like a small one time it was like 60 or 70 people came marching by in black block. So you have to be very careful especially if you go to one of these things and you're trying to leave, like they'll have people out two, three, four blocks. So you're not safe just because you're, you've left the immediate action. They basically don't allow press to embed with them unless the press is pretty much in the tank for them. Uh, if they see someone there that's, you can usually get away with taking a photograph or filming, although they're cracking down that really hard lately, especially with, because of me and other people that have gone there and filmed and, things that have leaked out but if they're press and they're there one thing they'll do is they will confront people and they will actually ask them like who are you with you know can we look at your social media and they'll look at your social media and they'll make sure that you're someone that's aligned with you with them before they allow you to actually film around them I mean if you aren't and they're angry about it um, you know they will definitely make sure that it's very uncomfortable for you to stay there so, yeah, the press that's going out and embedding with them are people that, you know, agree with them and want to reinforce the points that they're working on. And they're going to film things and release things in a way that's going to make Antifa look as best as possible and make their opponents look as terrible as possible. Lately, they've kind of been getting away from live streaming and they're going more to filming and editing what they film and then tweeting it out shortly afterwards after a short delay so that the police don't get because you know the police are monitoring social media too so that way the police aren't getting any operational advantages by watching the streams yeah there's just a lot less there is some still live streaming but it's not a whole lot anywhere near a block it's especially now it's 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 very pretty much impossible to have any live streaming anywhere near a block now one big difference they have is they believe in violence in some fundamentally different ways than normal people. They think of violence as a spectrum, not a switch. Um, most people, either you're violent or you're not violent, but they calibrate their violence to a degree where normal people have a hard time really responding in a way that's not an overreaction. Like if someone wants to come up there and harass you and push you or mace you or you know, maybe punch you in the stomach or something like that, 
most obviously it's very quickly people are going to start flipping out and they're going to start punching back. Um, and that's when the press come in and they get the film of you punching somebody in the face and then they tweet that segment out and it makes you look bad. They're going, oh, this horrible fascist attacked this person and beat them up. But they, they leave out the whole part where maybe they threw explosives at you, maybe they maced you, maybe they hit you with a stick or something. All those provocations, those get trimmed out. And that's part of why what they're doing is they're really trying to create propaganda. Um, part of it is what they're trying to do is create propaganda. And that's how they do that. So that tactic is called a dilemma action. Um, it's something that's extremely common. A dilemma action is when you're putting your enemy in a dilemma because they don't have a good decision. Either they do nothing, they back down, they look weak, or they respond and in a way that's an overreaction and it gives them a PR victory because it has their opponent looking horrible. And that's why they do that spectrum of violence. It's like they have, you know, they're, they're looking for calibrating what they're going to do to their opponent's capabilities in a way that their opponent cannot respond in a way that doesn't look bad, that doesn't work good. It, like, it just makes them look terrible. Um, like I mentioned in Portland, it's like when they would go to the police association building, they would start spray painting it, do some minor vandalism, and they would slowly start ramping up the damage until the building, they set the building on fire. And they're just slowly easing that knob up, you know, and they didn't really burn the whole building. They basically broke the door open, set the door on fire, and that's when the cops responded. And they have all this footage at that point of a police riot line bull rushing people running away, and, you know, it looks bad, but again, you don't see everything that led up to it. You don't see the whole context. And that's actually why I named this podcast Contextual Insurgent. Because I'm trying to encourage people to look at the context. It's like, what happened before? What's going to happen after? What's happening in the bigger picture? The funding is an interesting topic because they get funding from multiple sources. And it's more than just Soros, which people seem to blame everything on Soros. And he is a player, but there's so much more involved to it than just Soros. Um, the funding at the street level is pre predominantly crowdfunding. Uh, they raise on funds on different sites. The riot ribs that was across the street from the Justice Center made $300,000 in crowdfunding. That was riot, riot ribs was the people that were giving out free food every night. Um, the PDX Shield Maiden Collective got like $50,000 to buy soft body armor for people and hand it out to confirmed regular Black Bloc members that attend on, fairly often. Um, and the PDX Shield Maiden Collective has like an entirely different fundraising, crowdfunding site for um, paying for supplies to build shields. There's another guy with the snack van. He was making two or three thousand dollars a night. When he was every time they would slash his tires, the cops would. He would ha throw a crowdfunding, and people would pay him two, two or three thousand dollars, you know, for four hundred dollars worth of tires. Um, there is like some institutional funding, but that mostly goes towards people like National Lawyers Guild and a lot of the nonprofits. It's like they don't really just hand that out to people on the street. A lot of the crowdfunding you get from like the Thousand Currents or the Tides Foundation, which are front organizations for a lot of very wealthy people, go towards like, you know, 
local ACLU chapters, National Lawyers Guild chapters, things of that nature. Now, not all Antifa hit the streets in a black block. Black block is kind of like the tip of an iceberg or a shark's fan cutting the water. You know, it's the most visible part, but there's so much more to it below the surface that you don't see. And in many respects, that can even be the more important part. I've already covered the fundraising stuff, um, but there's also people that, you know, the people that run the mutual aid organizations and a lot of the run like the snack fan, uh, a lot of the auxiliaries, I guess you could say. Um, there's also a lot of researchers that do doxing. Uh, you may have seen, you know, I mentioned National Lawyers Guild that show up to these things, the people in the green hats. They're taking notes of what they see from the opposition. Um, they try to film, you know, license plates. They try to get identifying information and they'll pass it on to researchers who will look in databases and everything, do their hacking, doxing stuff, get all your information. And if they, you know, decide you are a thought criminal, they will put you on, they will dump all your information on the internet. They will find everything embarrassing about you that they can and they'll try to dump that on the internet and shame you. Like they will do things like find out where someone works, try to get them fired. Um, they will try to, you know, get them banned from social media, um, get them cut off from things like Venmo and, and other cash apps and PayPal. Um, yeah, it's really about applying pressure to people. And that's what a lot of those people do. And that's the part people don't see because it's not in the streets. And it's hard to respond to. You know, if you target someone and research them and find their vulnerabilities and apply pressure to that, that is that is really a huge thing. And that's actually a really big part of what Antifa does. Antifa really has two main targets. That is law enforcement and citizens that hold opinions they don't approve of. I mentioned in my first episode I talked about with the dilemma action with law enforcement one of the things they do is they provoke the police into overreacting in front of cameras and they also provoke the police into chasing them into suburban you know single-family home neighborhoods and when they're there you know they often will deploy flashbangs and tear gas because it gets pretty it gets pretty rough when they're when they're having the shield walls and the street battles um, Obviously, those things aggravate people, uh, especially on a weeknight. <laughs> you know, no one likes to have tear gas in their home at a midnight on like a Thursday night or something or a Wednesday night. So that, you know, aggravates the local community. And then in the days following, they will send their medic collectives around with stacks of flyers explaining how to, you know, prepare for tear gas, how to react if you're exposed to tear gas. They will hand out bottles of sanitizer. Um, some of these flyers, you know, they'll explain everything. They they blame, they explicitly blame the police. And they're trying to get people to think of the police as a occupying force. Um, you know, that adds up. And that's one of the reasons now why Ted Wheeler is way behind in the polls to a to an, an open Antifa candidate Sarah Ironi in Portland. Um, so that's part, that's a big thing. That makes a big difference. Um, the other thing with the citizenry, you know, just by harassing and assaulting and attacking them and getting people fired and doxxed, 
that raises the cost of trying to organize in an area for people and people will many people will get cowed in submission you know there's operant conditioning where people you know if you keep touching something and it's hot and you're like ow you know eventually you're going to have a reaction you're going to have an ingrained trained reaction and they're basically what they're doing is like we don't agree with what your political activities so we're going to punish you and if we keep punishing you after a while you'll begin to self-censor and that's really what they're doing with that um, also by weakening the police what that does is that allows them to to work unmolested they kind of function like in the bay area um, they're getting this way in portland as well but in in the bay area especially berkeley and antifa has become kind of a paramilitary um, the cops can't really do anything about them and you know they function in that gray area it's anarcho tyranny the cops can't really stop them but there's no way to respond to them because the cops can crack down on law-abiding citizens okay so i'm gonna start wrapping this up uh, i hope you found this educational and useful um, i tried to give you as much top-line good bullet point information as i could in a reasonable link, digestible length um, if you want to know more we again we have a monograph coming out at Center for Security Policy um, I wrote the tactics chapter on that it's 18 something pages and I expand on a lot of the points that I've discussed here um, keep an eye out for that it should be out soon again if you would you know I would super appreciate it if you enjoy my work and you want to support me my cash app is dollar sign e. E. Smith 4 and patreon backslash um, e. E. Smith 4 um, my next upcoming episodes I have I'm setting up an interview with some people that were in leadership in the recent Bolivian uprising where they ejected their president Evo Morales and that's gonna be really exciting my plan is we're setting up the interview this weekend and I'm gonna have basically content all next week is going to be all about Bolivia and the uprising and it's going to be touching on a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in my other two episodes a lot of the color revolution fourth generation warfare fifth generation warfare it's been a little more esoteric topics but you know and this is going to be you know me discussing some things like that with um, a guest and I hope you tune in for that but anyway I appreciate it so much this is Aaron Smith with the Textual Insurgent Project